Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big 12 has plundered Colorado, and it's not done yet as the realignment carousel that the SEC set in motion in 2021 with its additions of Oklahoma and Texas continues to twirl. Welcome into SEC Football Unfiltered, our podcast from the USA Today Network. I'm Blake Topmeyer, joined as always by John Adams. On the episode today, we'll discuss the latest in the realignment movements. We're also going to play a little game where we have to swap out some SEC teams in favor of Big 12 teams, and we we differ a little bit on which Big 12 teams we'd prefer in the SEC. Later in the episode, John will react to my annual SEC football coach power rankings that published last week over at usatoday.com. He agrees with some of my picks, disagrees with others in my pecking order. John, let's start with realignment. The big news last week had been rumored for weeks now. Colorado says, who says you can't go home again? They're headed back to the Big 12 (laughs) after uh, about a decade plus in the Pac-12. What do you think about that move? Is that good for Colorado, good for the Big 12, and what does it mean for the Pac-12? I think it's good for college football. Colorado always really fit into the Big 12 a lot more than it did in the Pac-12. I mean, I go back when they had the big, I liked the old conferences better. I liked the old Big 8. That league actually made sense back then. Uh, Just getting Colorado won't bring sense to a nonsensical conference, but I think it's a really good move for for Colorado, and it's a good move for the Big 12. And uh, the Pac-12 is just about on life support. Uh, they, somebody needs to wake up over there. Yeah. And it was just a couple of years ago where the big 12 appeared to be nearing life support with the loss of its two biggest brands in Oklahoma and Texas, but it has come off the ropes. I mean, first round it, it added BYU, Cincinnati, Houston, and UCF, but it wasn't done there. It's added Colorado. And so once Oklahoma and Texas finally depart the Big 12 after this season and join the SEC, that would leave the Big 12 with 13 members with this addition of Colorado. Well, we know no conference wants to stay in perpetuity at 13 members, and and the Big 12 has been very open about its desires to continue expanding. Now, maybe 16 is the final number for the Big 12, which is where the SEC and the Big 10 are going to be. But let's say the number is 14. John, let's say there's just one more addition for the Big 12 to make here in this round. There's been a lot of focus on the so-called four corners schools and whether they might wind up in the Big 12. Of course, one of them now we know is headed to the Big 12. Colorado was among those four corner schools. The others in that grouping are Arizona, Arizona State, and Utah. Now, maybe this winds up with all of those 
going to the Big 12, and it's a 16-team conference. But let's just say one of them were, were to end up in the Big 12. Which one do you think would be the best addition for the Big 12 to join Colorado and coming into what would be a 14-team conference? That, to me, is a really easy choice. Um, I would take Utah. I think it'll be a really good fit for the Big 12. Now, you could say Oregon, which seems like an obvious choice, and too obvious is probably why you didn't use that. However, uh, geographically and kind of style of play, I think Utah fits in more with the Big 12, what we used to think of the Big 12. Maybe it can be what Nebraska used to be. Uh, Utah, pretty pretty physical up front on both sides of the ball. That's how it beats Southern California. That's how it's been winning that conference with a with an offense and defense that's a little bit contrary to what most of the league is doing, speaking of the Pac-12. So I would really – I think uh, Utah would be a really good addition. And if I were Utah, I wouldn't hesitate. Like, if we've learned anything about this expansion – you have to be aggressive. You just can't sit back and wait and hope and we'll see what happens. If you got a shot and you think it's a pretty good one, don't hesitate. Just take it. To me, that would be a good good move for Utah and a great move for the Big 12. I figured you would either go with Utah or Arizona. John, Arizona, not from a football standpoint, but the Big 12, I think, already has a claim to being the nation's best basketball conference. Arizona is not exactly a basketball blue blood, but it's a it's a strong basketball program year in, year out. Won the NCAA championship in 1997. Of course, Utah had some some good basketball teams as well, uh, made a final four in the in the late 90s. But you know, all things being equal, I think Arizona would be seen as as maybe you know a little bit ahead of of Utah and and hoops. But you're thinking more from a football standpoint. I guess the Big Twelve doesn't they don't need another basketball school, right? They're they're fine on that front, and and so go for go for Utah, which fits more with them in football, and and still is a decent basketball school too. But Blake, as you know well, this expansion is football driven. Uh, networks aren't looking at. Uh, basketball. I mean, that's what college basketball is just about a niche sport. Now college football, everybody pretty much is into college football. And I think that's, what's driving all of this. So yeah, Arizona would bring some, uh, uh, certainly some, uh, stronger caliber program in basketball, but I think for football, Utah, and it's not bad in basketball. Uh, so I think to me, that would be, that would just be a great addition. Uh, and I, when I think about this mythical league that you're helping form, I I really like it. Uh, we've heard so much about, yeah, it's going to be two super conferences, Big Ten, SEC. I don't know about that. I think the Big 12, what the Big 12 is building, it's building on what we talked about this before, but what once was considered a, a weakness is you're not, geographically tied together is because they're turning it into a plus we're a national conference we're a national conference and we can give you colorado and we'll give you west virginia we 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 go (laughs) along with byu and ucf yeah not not really not quite coast to coast but but pretty close so 
I really like what the Big 12's doing. It, it, it's a league I, I'd like to watch. What would you rather watch? You look at what's left of the Pac-12 or oh, a Big, yeah, or big, big 12? Big 12 is going to be incredibly entertaining, I, I think, both in football and basketball. You know, I don't know if it joins the the so-called Super 2 in the Big Ten and the SEC, but I don't think it's that far behind. Um, you know, I think if we think of these Power 5 schools as all one group, that's not really fair. That's not really accurate, right? Like, I, I think uh, the Big 12, when all is said and done here, is probably going to be closer to being a to the Super 2 than it will be to whatever remains, if anything, of the Pac-12. So, you know, it is tiers within the Power Five. I do think, you know, the SEC and Big Ten still enjoy some separation. But, yeah, I mean, the ACC has been kind of stagnant here throughout all of this. Now there's rumblings that Florida State and maybe others are going to try to put that grant of rights deal to the test. We'll see. I mean, that's been rumored for months now and nothing doing so far. But that's back in the news here recently that Florida State might might see if there's a trap door it could slip out of in that grant of rights deal. So, yeah, the, the ACC's treading water, the, the Pac-12's losing ground, and and despite losing Oklahoma and Texas, with the addition of these five schools that the Big 12 has made and, and perhaps one to three more on the horizon, yeah, I think it's positioning itself to be on that number three perch. And, in fact, I know you and I like – some of the teams in the Big 12 so much that that leads us into today's thought exercise, if you will, in which uh, we are required by the rules we've devised in this game to boot out four members of the SEC and replace them with four members of the Big 12. Now, why are we kicking out four members of the SEC? I don't know. Those are the rules we came up with, <laughs> and we're going to follow them. And although we disagree on which four Big 12 schools we would want to add. We are in agreement on the SEC schools we would say farewell to to make room for them. And so here's our list. Uh, goodbye. Thanks for your services to Kentucky, Missouri, Vanderbilt, and South Carolina. It's been real. It's been fun. And we wish you well wherever you land. John, would you like to say anything on those four schools? Was there any one of those four that was particularly tough to say goodbye to in, in that mix? Well, yeah, Kentucky. Because of Kentucky basketball, covering Kentucky basketball through the years, I thoroughly enjoyed it. A lot of drama with the program, incredible fan interest. And I know it's tailed off recently under John Calipari, but it's recruiting top players in the country year in and year out. That hasn't changed, just hasn't won as much. But yeah, because I can go back – Growing up in Louisiana, LSU basketball was not a factor. This is uh, pre-Pistol Pete. So I listened to Kentucky games on the radio. kind of, And they were a fun team to follow because they, they ran an up-tempo style even back in the, back in the 60s. Had a lot, a lot of great players, and you could hear their games on a clear channel station. So, yeah, I kind of developed an affinity for Kentucky ball at the time. Uh, as for the others, Vanderbilt, <laughs> um, okay, Missouri. Um, I like the Missouri fans because they aren't as hostile as most SEC fans, uh, but they've never really fit in in this league. I mean, See, the way I look the at it is we're, we're taking four Big 12 schools away 
we're, we're booting out four SEC schools. That creates a void in the Big 12 that it's going to need to fill. And as with Colorado, who says you can't go home? Hey, Missouri, go on home to the Big 12. All's well that ends well. So, yeah, I don't feel too bad about Missouri there because they can go back to the conference where um, they were probably a, a better fit all along and, uh, you know, rekindle things with Iowa State, Kansas, Oklahoma State and the like. I, I agree with you on Kentucky basketball. I suppose, um, you know, that is something you have to give consideration to, but hey, it's football first in the SEC, particularly in the conference that we're looking to assemble here with uh, some of our additions. And then South Carolina, you know, I really like the atmosphere at williams Bryce Stadium. I've written before. I think it's an underrated home football venue. I like when they get those white towels going and sandstorm plays, especially night games. I think it's a pretty good venue. But let's face it, South Carolina's had 30 years in the league. They haven't won a football conference championship. They're, they're a women's basketball power, but on the, the men's side, you know, they had one storybook season making it to the Final Four in 2017. But by and large, they're a non-factor in men's basketball. So as much as I like that football environment, sorry, we had to choose four and South Carolina was, was the fourth on the list. Yeah, I, I like that. I agree with you on the environment at uh, williams Bryce Stadium. But, and it came down to me between Arkansas and South Carolina. And I just couldn't get, get away from the fact that Arkansas has a history in football that South Carolina simply doesn't. I mean, it was a use until Steve Spurrier arrived, it was a big deal for South Carolina. Hey, the Gamecocks qualified for a uh, a bowl game. Let's have a parade. A little confetti, please. It's uh, it's just uh, doesn't have that tradition. Plus, now that Texas, Oklahoma, Texas A&M are all in the league, those are all familiar rivals to Arkansas. So I decided to keep Arkansas. Um do you want me to go over from how I feel about Vanderbilt again, or did I make that clear? No, I think we're I think we're covered okay. on on Vanderbilt. Okay. Let's get to the first of our four editions. We're in agreement on two, where we have different picks for the final spots that we would we would pry loose for the Big Twelve. So let's start with uh, one of the ones we agree on. Uh, we would both snap up Oklahoma State for one of our spots. And I know that's one, John, you've discussed before on this podcast you think would uh, would be good for the STC, particularly with Oklahoma already coming in. You could get Bedlam going again, uh, one, one of the great rivalries in college football. Uh, Oklahoma State's had some good basketball teams over the years as well. And I know, I know you love that wrestling program at Oklahoma State as, as well, has a, has a storied, history on the wrestling mat so yeah just the the full package there an obvious an obvious move right if we got to kick out four i think the list starts with oklahoma state and who we're bringing in yeah doesn't iowa state have a good wrestling program too or am i wrong on that yeah they're, they're both iowa schools yeah more so uh iowa but iowa state's a okay. factor too yeah, iowa, but, yeah okay, that might was... cause you to re, re, recast your thinking on the rest no of the no i just was thinking of another a wrestling rival for oklahoma state since you Brought that Oklahoma. up. Huh? Oklahoma's got wrestling. <laughs> uh, Oklahoma State's averaged about nine wins a year in football for 15 years. Contrast that with uh, Missouri, South Carolina, 
Kentucky, Vanderbilt. I mean, there's no comparison. I, I look at Oklahoma schools, Oklahoma and Oklahoma State is North Texas. Same kind of attitude, really good football program. So, yeah, that's a – can't go wrong at Oklahoma State. Maybe I'll uh, – I'll campaign on that. I don't know what I'd be campaigning for, but I, I want the Cowboys in there. Yeah, to your point, John, seven seasons with at least 10 wins since 2010 for Oklahoma State. Now, they you know, they could stay in the Big 12 and, and be one of the best football programs in that conference, but, hey, you know, come in and, and test yourself against the best. I think they, uh, they'd be a fit for the league that we're forming here. Uh, if we're we're adding four Big 12 schools. And we're also in agreement on another school. This one might be a surprise to some because it's one of the new Big 12 members. We both like UCF, the uh, previously so-called national champions, according to former UCF athletics director Danny White, who's now at Tennessee in a year that uh, UCF was competing as a group of five schools, went undefeated. Danny White declared them national champions. Not sure anybody else did. Maybe one of those random ratings groups that nobody knows really what they do. But, uh, you know, this is a a look toward the future. UCF's enrollment is huge. Got momentum in the the football program. I kind of like UCF as a a forward-thinking addition. And, And since we're only getting Big 12 schools here, we can't get Florida State then. Right, they're not eligible for selection. So if we want another another Florida school, UCF's the choice, and and we both agree on that one. Yeah, just look at the demographics. Uh, Florida was already was already big, heavily populated. Now it's even bigger, more populated. People are flocking to Florida. They want the sunshine, and I don't know what else, but they're going to Florida. So that is a vote for the future. And the schools enrollment, I don't know many schools that the enrollment has increased so drastically in a shorter period of time than UCF's has. I mean, it was like all of a sudden, I was thinking it was about like 15,000 students at that school. And then I heard the enrollment figure, are you kidding me? It's like It's like 70,000. It's like 70,000. I mean, they got 15,000 students probably in a business course, like a business 101 course. You probably look around, there's 15,000 kids in the course alone. There aren't that many journalism courses, though, I can assure you that. So, yeah, I think that's a – and it's had success in football. Granted, not SEC caliber football, but Scott Frost went 13-0 and there and then fell fell off the planet in Nebraska. Gus Malzahn's there now. Josh Heupel, Heupel at Tennessee had a 12-win season, three-win. So, and you know how it is to recruit in Florida. There's so many athletes. One of the ones we disagree on, John, I'm adding BYU, another newcomer in the Big 12. I thought they've been a, a fit for the Big 12 for a long time, and they're finally joining. I end up, maybe, maybe this is just personal bias, because I end up watching a lot of BYU games throughout the season. They play on some weeknights, it seems like. They also play later in the evening. So if I'm covering a game earlier in the day, you know, I can catch a second half of a BYU game that maybe kicks off at like 9 or 10 o'clock Eastern time. So I end up watching a lot of BYU games. But they've been a program for years as an independent that kind of had the attitude of, we'll play anybody. 
right? They've been an independent for a decade plus after leaving the Mountain West. They were in the WAC before that. And, you know, one time they had a ton of success. Football won a national championship, 1984. And also maybe not to the extent as Notre Dame, not maybe, certainly not to the extent of Notre Dame, John, which has like a national brand thanks to the Catholic religion, not quite to that level, but still BYU does have sort of a a, a widespread following more so than beyond its state borders because of the Mormon religion. And, you know, I think that brings in followers of BYU that don't live in, in Utah that are members of, of that faith. And also, John, if we're getting rid of Vanderbilt, you know, we're kind of getting rid of the smarty pants in this league and BYU's academic profile doesn't quite match Vanderbilt, but still average ACT score of a BYU students like 29 or 30. That's pretty good academic reputation. And those BYU students, they usually go on a mission. So they've got life experiences as well. You ever interview a BYU athlete, you know, you think it almost seems like you're talking to someone who's 30 years old. They've, they've been out and had a taste of the world and, uh, got the perspective that comes with it. So I don't know. I'm, I'm on board with, with BYU. I know you didn't go for them, but maybe they don't fit the, uh, the Southern tapestry that the SEC has kind of built here, but I kind of like it. Well, uh, I've, I followed BYU a long time, uh, for one of the reasons you do, because their games are on late at night. Um, sometimes you have a chance to see them play and also, way back before offense was so prominent as it is now under Lavelle Edwards, BYU was throwing the ball as much as anybody and had great quarterback Steve Young, of course, uh, NFL Hall of Famer. And I remember one of the more forgettable Heisman Trophy winners was Ty Detmer at BYU. He was a great player, and uh, BYU won a national championship back in 84. Yeah, I wouldn't go with that, but I, you know, I, I don't have a real problem with it. Uh, I think some Southerners wouldn't go for it. <laughs> Maybe uh, I, not, but Utah is a beautiful state, right? Like you like you, oh, you like the vacation there. Yeah, so it's a beautiful be a good road state. trip. How about one that that you're going for that I didn't have on on my list? I know you got a, a couple there. Yeah, I got. Uh, you didn't have TCU. I didn't. Reigning national runner-up, for whatever and, that's worth. And that game could have gone either way. <laughs> uh, TCU kind of fell behind early, got away from its game plan, and and things didn't go well. But, yeah, you know how games can hinge on a player too early that set a sure. tone. And, yeah, 65-7. to seven. So TCU had a great season. Uh, it's, in the, it's in Fort Worth, part of the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Huge population base. And I think those people are spending some NIL money. TCU went to the College World Series in baseball, uh, went to the NCAA tournament in basketball. I really like where that we talked about UCF, the the future. We're looking at the UCF for the future. I think TCU could be could be viewed in the same light. I really think big things are ahead. And I know you really liked the old Southwest Conference, John, oh, and, yeah, and with with Texas now coming oh. in, the SEC's already added Texas A and M. 
Arkansas, we decided to keep in the league. So you bring in TCU, it's starting to get a little bit of old Southwest Conference vibes, which is probably kind of the cherry on top for you, I'm sure. Yeah, that as a kid, it was, of course, SEC, but second was Southwest Conference. And uh, those, those schools just couldn't resist the urge to cheat and then cheat some more and then some more. And so well, that was ultimately their their downfall. I mean, they got they figured those schools started looking around. So, why does Texas have to win all the time? Why can't we do it at SMU or anywhere else? So, yeah, I think I think that would be a really nice addition. Well, let's stick with the old Southwest Conference theme, John, and get to your your final addition that you'd like to pry loose from the Big Twelve in favor of the SEC. Yeah, I really like uh, bringing Houston into the league. You're you're bringing another huge metropolitan area. Houston was a it was a late arrivee to the Southwest Conference back in the old days, and there were some times before it got in that conference that everybody was like, "Man, we don't need Houston in there." It was viewed as kind of a outlaw school, but yeah, Houston it's had success. And it's also, it's got a great tradition in basketball. You put Houston in the SEC, and I'm telling you, it's uh, with that recruiting base, and you combine that with the SEC logo, it's going to be a tough program to beat in anything, I think. Since we're getting rid of Kentucky, John, a, a basketball blue blood, I even though I didn't have Houston on my list, I, I kind of like this addition, uh, partially because of the basketball standpoint. I mean, I do think they'd be, they'd fit fine and football might be tough sledding for a while. And I think they'd struggle to get out of the shadow of schools like Texas A&M and Texas. Uh, but from the basketball front, you know, they've gone to the elite eight and back to back years Had a final four, a couple seasons ago. I mean, you know, looking, looking through the prism of just the last few years, they've been a better program than what Kentucky's been. And then you, you know, you dial it back uh, to what they did with their teams in the, in the eighties where they were, you know, a regular in the, the sweet 16 and beyond. Uh, I think that's a, that's a good pickup to offset a little bit. The, the basketball departure of Kentucky. So I went in a, a different direction though, and maybe I had a little bit of basketball in mind as well, because Kansas state is coming off an elite eight season, uh, in basketball was also in, in the elite eight in 2018. They've had, you know, they, they don't win at the highest level in football, but they are persistently a factor. They played in the sugar bowl this past season. Uh, they actually won the, the big 12 and upset TCU and in, in the, the big 12 championship game. You know, when the sec added Missouri, I thought, now here's a school that's going to have a lot of success in this conference in basketball. And that really hasn't panned out for Missouri in hoops. They've just, I mean, some years they were really bad. Other years they were kind of an also ran in the SEC. But I really thought the stage was set for Missouri to be year in, year out, one of uh, the SEC's better basketball programs. Didn't happen. Um, but I look at Kansas State in a similar light. I, I think this uh, would be a school that would have you know, quite a bit of, of men's basketball success in this conference. And in football, would they be winning conference championships? No. But, you know, I think they could could hold their own in football. They could win 
seven, eight games, I think, more years than than not in football. So, yeah, rather than I, – I don't mind your pick of Houston, but uh, I decided to go in a different route there and take Kansas State. And, and really, you know, you look at this past year of Kansas State athletics, I don't know if their stock's ever been higher. They're coming off a 10-win season in football under Chris Kleiman. And as I said, they went to the Elite Eight in basketball. So maybe this is just a victim of the moment, but I'm going with Kansas State. Well, I uh, Kansas State and I go way back. I was stationed in the Army 50 years ago at uh, Fort Riley, Kansas, about 35 miles away from the Kansas State uh, campus. Uh, we had a softball team competed against the Kansas State uh, uh some of the football players were on the can on one of these teams. We played in a Manhattan league. Uh, Lynn Dickey was a famous Kansas state quarterback played in the NFL for a long time. Uh, their current quarterback at the time was also on the team. And Bill Butler, a fullback uh, for Kansas state was a uh, played for the saints. The program was horrible back then, but they still had some good players. They had like a five and seven team. That would be considered, wow, you know, three or four guys drafted a five and seven team. And yeah, I gave up this epic three run homer to Bill Butler and a <laughs> home run to dead center field to Lynn Dickey. I think Kansas State, the resurgence in football is one of the greatest stories in college football. That program was, was dead. I remember when I was stationed out there, Nebraska winning 56 to nothing over Kansas State, and it was 49 to nothing at half. They showed uh, mercy in the second half. But it, the program lost all the time. Bill Snyder resurrected that program. One of the greatest coaching jobs ever, what he did with that program. I never thought Kansas State could win a Big 12 championship I didn't, in football. I didn't think that was possible. And, uh, Kansas State, to me, John, profiles a little bit like Mississippi State. Like in a given season, they're going to punch a little bit above what their perceived weight would be, and they'd sneak around and win eight or nine games in a year. And and yet then the following season, if they were in the SEC, they'd be picked to finish like last in their division, if divisions still exist. I mean, that's like Mississippi State's plight, right? They go out and, and win nine games last year. Of course, they've had the coaching change, the death of Mike Leach um, and and Zach Arnett, now the first-year coach. But I don't know if it really would have mattered. I don't even know. If Mississippi State doesn't have a coaching change, they still might have been picked to finish last in the West this year. Like, that's sort of the the annual right of summer for Mississippi State is, eh, they're picked to finish last in the West. But, you know, they've, they've made 13 straight bowl games. And yeah. I feel like Kansas State has sort of turned itself into a similar program where oftentimes they fly under the radar and then you look at them at the end of the year and they're nine and four. As you said, if you can do that, it's easier to do that in the Big 12 now than it is in the SEC. It's the Mississippi State team can remember when it was ranked number one when it had Dak Prescott middle of the season, but sustaining that is so hard in the SEC. You can be last in the West in the SEC and go to a bowl. Uh, it's not a condemnation of your program if you're last in the West. It's the toughest division in football. You mentioned, John, that it was a 2014 season, Mississippi State at one time, 
was number one in the nation. Uh, in 2012, a season in which Kansas State won 11 games, there was a point during that season where Kansas State was ranked as high as number two. So, I mean, you hit it. Like back in the day, they were terrible in, in football, predating my time. Uh, but Bill Snyder read, led a, a surge to relevance and and I don't know that there's really ever been a better time for the athletic department. So that's that's our roster there. We're getting rid of uh, four. We're getting rid of Missouri, Vanderbilt, Kentucky, and South Carolina. You are bringing in Houston, TCU, Oklahoma State, and UCF. I'm also going with Oklahoma State and UCF, but I'm going with BYU and Kansas State. I don't think it's going to happen, but it's our <laughs> podcast. It's our show. Well, and Blake, I would like to uh, just a final word on this topic. I I wish those four schools that we're throwing out of the league all the best. Oh, I know I, you I, do. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. I wish them uh, the greatest success in their future endeavors in the Big Twelve, and hope they win national championships. All right, John. Let's get into our next topic. Last week, I had my annual. SEC football coach power rankings, which, of course, always leads to a fair bit of debate. Fans of, of their, you know, certain coaches think they get snubbed, and other coaches, maybe I overrated. You tell me. Here was my 1 through 14 ordering, John. I started off with Kirby Smart, followed by Nick Saban. I've been doing these power rankings for a few years now, and despite Georgia's national championship two seasons ago. I kept Saban atop my power pole last year, but on the heels of back-to-back and Georgia being favored to win a third straight going into this season, I moved Kirby to the number one spot. Nobody is recruiting, retaining, and developing talent better than Georgia right now. He's implemented the Alabama blueprint to perfection. Georgia is now the standard for defense in college football. So I got Kirby one. I have Saban two, Brian Kelly three, Lane Kiffin four, Josh Heupel five. So before I get to the, the rest of the list, curious about your, your thoughts on my top five there. Kirby, Saban, Brian Kelly, Lane Kiffin, and Josh Heupel. Well, I think we agree that Nick Saban uh, is the greatest college football coach of all time. Uh, he won seven national championships. Bear Bryant didn't do badly himself. He won six. Uh, but this is kind of right now. It's not about it's not about history. It's about right now. And I agree with you. Kirby Smart, tremendous recruiter. And and most coaches, I think, would say that pep talks are overrated. But. Uh, Rewatching some of those things on the SEC network and listening to Kirby address his team at pregame and at halftime. Man, that guy looks like he's going to run out there and play. He's going to tackle somebody. I think young guys really relate to what he says and the way he goes about it. Uh, so, yeah, just all around it. He can, we, we know he came within one great to a tongue of a lower play of having another national championship uh, in overtime, just an incredible play that won a national title for Alabama. So Kirby's got it going. And 
I just don't think anybody can win three national championships in a row, but I, I wouldn't bet against Georgia. What do you think about the, the bottom half of my top five, John? Because one, one area where I encountered some, some pushback was from Tennessee fans that thought I snubbed Heupel at the number five position and should have had him flipped with Lane Kiffin. It's interesting. Heupel and Kiffin have the same record the past two seasons. You combine their record from 2021 and 2022. Uh, identical records. Kiffin won the head-to-head in 2021. However, Heupel has more signature victories. Last season alone, Tennessee beat Alabama, LSU, and Clemson, meaning that Heupel has wins over Nick Saban, Brian Kelly, and Dabo Sweeney. So I I do think there's a fair case for for Heupel to be made at at four. I think Kiffin's been doing it longer. I think it's maybe a little tougher historically at Ole Miss. And uh, so I gave the slightest of edges to Kiffin at number four. But uh, what do you think about that one? Because that is an area where I encountered some some blowback. Well, uh, first of all, I agree with Brian Kelly, number three. Went to the uh, college football playoff a couple of times. Uh, didn't really have the talent uh, to go beyond what he did to win a championship at Notre Dame. But he did a great job at Notre Dame. My opinion of him uh, rose last year with what he did with LSU. Quick fix. Uh, transfer portal, good recruiting, and uh, found the right quarterback for his system. Really like what he's done. So, also he's won wherever he's been. He won at Central Michigan, won at Cincinnati, uh, won at Notre Dame. He's going to win big at LSU. I think we agree LSU should be the favorite, not Alabama in the West this year. So I'm fine with that. Then I went down to Kiffin and Heupel. That's a really good debate because they're very similar. Offensive-minded coaches, really good with quarterbacks, uh, very creative. Uh, I would give the Josh Josh Heupel an edge. I just think his system is a little bit better than Lane's. Uh, And I I say that not as much about last year's team that won 11 games and then beat Clemson. Part of that was beating Clemson in the Orange Bowl. But that first team he had at Tennessee – was not very talented. He won seven games and averaged over 39 points a game. Uh, So I think he's a little, let's say, I think he's a little more stable than Lane Kiffin, that if I were hiring a coach and I could choose between the two, I would probably take Heupel. But I really like Lane Kiffin. That's a really strong top five. Yeah, I, you would have the the same top five then, I guess. You might just yes, consider uh-huh. flipping Hypo. Yeah, just, just that yeah. one change. Uh-huh. Okay, all right, fair enough. Let's get on to the, the next five then. This is six through ten on my rankings. Um, Hugh Freeze is at number six, entering his first year at Auburn, but of course he's, uh, he's done it at Ole Miss and then scrubbed his image at Liberty and proved he's still got it on the sideline. Shane Beamer. Checking in number seven on my list. Beamer and Heupel were the two guys that year over year had the biggest climb. Heupel jumped from number nine to number five year over year in my power rankings. Beamer, I had him at number 11 last year. I have him all the way up to number seven right now. That's followed by Jimbo Fisher at number eight. He had the the biggest tumble year over year. I had Jimbo at number three last year. 
all the way down at number eight on, on the heels of that five and seven season. And then rounding out my top 10, Mark Stoops at number nine, Sam Pittman at number 10. Your thoughts on, on this grouping? Okay, I agree with Hugh Freeze. I mean, he's another guy who's won wherever he's been, really good offensively, difficult situation in Auburn. Uh, but he's recruiting well. I flipped a five-star, I think, or wide receiver maybe from Alabama last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's gotten some good transfers. He's really upgraded the roster. It's hard to move up in the SEC West. And I would, I, I think we both are kind of on board with Auburn being last in the West, but that's not an indictment of Hugh Freeze. I think the program will get up, get much better under him. So I go along with that. I have a hard time putting Shane Beamer ahead of Jimbo Fisher. And AM was a mess. The offense was awful last season. And that's supposed to be Jimbo's strength. It's like I'm maybe I'm uh desperately clinging to the image I have of Jimbo Fisher winning that national title at Florida State. I, I'm starting to think, John, that that national title was more a reflection of Jameis Winston than it was of Jimbo Fisher's brilliance because Jimbo has not really done much in the quarterback development area since Jameis Winston. He's not been the same coach since then. He, he had one great season at A&M, the pandemic year, a&M went nine and one and was right on right outside the college football playoff. But other than that, I mean, he's been kind of a a rich man's Kevin Sumlin, so to speak, at A&M. But you you, you rich, can't quite rich go there. Man. <laughs> he, yeah. Uh, well, I remember when he was hired. Much fanfare. A&M's finally got the coach that will lead it to the promised land, uh, and we'll pay him a lot for it. And somebody asked me, how did I think he'll do at A&M? I said, oh, he'll win a national championship. Uh, very matter-of-factly and with great certainty. A uh, couple of years ago, we had the team in the uh, almost made the playoff. That That's his high watermark. Uh, troubles with quarterback. So I don't know. I'm still, like I said, there's still part of that image in there of me thinking, yeah, with all those resources, he's recruited really good players where he's been. I guess me, I'm it rel- sounds like you're making a case for Jimbo Fisher to be even lower on the list, John. It's like despite all the <laughs> despite all the advantages he enjoys, he still well, hasn't got it done at A&M. It's but. it's almost like he's fallen off a roof of a ten story building. I'm I'm there on about the eighth floor, and I reach out and I grab him. <laughs> stop him from falling all the way to the bottom uh-huh. and thinking, well, you know, he, maybe he can climb his way back up. Okay. Um, so, but- <laughs> so you, you would, we, we, as, as we look at this, you're fine with, with Hugh freeze at, at number yes. six. You, yes. you think Beamer's too high at seven. You think uh, Jimbo maybe is, is getting a little bit snubbed there at eight. Um, I have stoops at nine Pittman at 10. So how would you sort of shake up this this ordering uh, of five coaches as I have? And I know you're you're leaving Hugh Freeze alone. Yeah. So how would you rank the next four? Well, the more we talk about it, the more I'm I'm wanting to drop Jimbo it, because I look at it like if I could hire one of these coaches, which one would I hire? There's some real uncertainty about Shane Beamer with me. 
I go back and forth on him. I, I look at how they had finished the season and the team played played hard. He clearly he may be the next best thing to uh, Kirby Smart when it comes to motivation. Players seem to really like him and play hard for him, so that's in his favor. I just think back to how bad it was at times last year and uh, losing to Florida by 30 points or so. How could it? Uh, so I would have problem with that, but it's the more I talk about it, the less the problem becomes. Now, I think it's interesting that shouldn't, it seems as though somebody would, here's a place to make a case for Mark Stoops. What is uh, Shane Beamer done compared to what Mark Stoops has done? I think we yeah. have a podcast bias against Mark Stoops, and I'm calling us both out on it. It's possible. Stoops has won 10 games twice at Kentucky. He's the best Kentucky coach since Bear Bryant. I had him at number six in my power rankings this year. I thought, I mean, he squandered a, a second-round NFL talent and Will Levis. They didn't have their offensive line last year. I feel like Kentucky has hit its ceiling under Stoops, which in his defense is a much higher ceiling than they had for, for many, many decades. Um, and he raised the floor. Uh, we have talked about their their light scheduling. Beamer's also a little bit of a, a buy-low type of pick for me. Beamer's got 15 wins through two seasons at South Carolina. Steve Spurrier through two seasons at South Carolina had 15 wins. So I'm trying to get in on the front end there. Mark Stoops, <laughs> I feel like his best days are, are behind him. But I do think you raise a fair point if you look at the totality of what Mark Stoops has achieved at Kentucky. Uh, it, you could make the case that... Uh, you know, that I'm overlooking him at number five in my rankings and, and could be a, a victim of the, of the moment of, of Kentucky, you know, not really doing much last year. They went seven and six, but they went out with a whimper and, uh, you know, wasn't, wasn't anything special, but he'd raised the bar so much for Kentucky with a 10 win season in 2018 and a 10 win season in 2021 that maybe that's why last season, you know, looks kind of bleak to me, just winning seven games. Well, looking at it from a perspective of whom we would hire, um, you've just been named the AD at UCF. Need to hire a football coach. Gus Malzahn is uh, retired, headed for the beach. You can have Mark Stoops or you can have Shane Beamer. Both of them have called you and left a message. You're telling me you would hire Shane Beamer there. I think I probably would. A few years ago, my answer probably would have been different. I mean, Shane Beamer, what had he done at that point? Nothing. Uh, was unproven. Still somewhat unproven. But I also think Mark Stoops at that time had the had the 10-win season in 2018, had the 10-win season 2021. I just feel like a little bit of the shine is is off there. I feel like that's a man where we've we've seen what his ceiling is. It's been a good ceiling for Kentucky. But uh, Shane Beamer's more of a roll the dice, and I think I'd be willing to roll the dice. If well, see, I do the same. Yeah. I do the same thing, but I do it half heartedly. I just don't. I, know. I might do it half heartedly too. Yeah, I'd rather have one of the guys in the top five of my rankings. We probably spent too much time debating 
Mark Stoops versus Shane Beamer. Well, maybe we did. So let's move along to the bottom four. John, I may have struggled with how to order these bottom four uh-huh. as, I'm, as much as I struggled with, with anything in this. Here's what I settled on. Mm-hmm. I settled on Billy Napier at number 11. I settled on Zach Arnett, who's coached all of one game at Mississippi State at number 12. He did win the bowl game. He took over after Mike Leach's death. Mississippi State won the bowl game. I think he did a nice job keeping that roster together, both emotionally and then uh, Mississippi State really wasn't hit that hard by the transfer portal despite losing their coach. Um, so that's a kind of a buy low situation too. Arnett had been one of the SEC's best defensive coordinators for, you, for a few years. I'm trying to get in early on him. And then I have Clark Lee at 13 and rounding out my list is good friend of the podcast. Hate to do it. Eli Drinkwitz at number 14 from Missouri. You know, I completely forgot about him. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's because you stopped reading my power rankings. You didn't no, make it all the way no, to No, I read your power rankings, and then I just – and then when I was right – then I made a list. I listed the coaches on my notepad, and I listed 13 guys, and I left him out. So, wow, 14th, and he's making $6 million a year. Goodness. That's- and, you know, as a couple years ago, Missouri had, by its standards, a, a really good recruiting class. And that was sort of the pitch for Drinkwitz was, look at the way he's recruiting, it's coming. You know, and, and then that stalled. And Missouri went back to recruiting the way it used to, or really right now in this moment, it's not recruiting well at all. If you look at 2024 recruiting rankings, it's still early. Things A lot can change between now and December signing period. Missouri's last in the SEC in 2024 recruiting rankings. And yes, last means behind Vanderbilt. So, and then you look at the achievements. Uh, Drinkwitz has not had a winning season yet. And, and, and I know we think that Missouri is one of the tougher jobs in the SEC, and it is. It is one of the tougher jobs in the SEC. But when you compare it to the two predecessors, you know, Gary Pinkle, best to, to ever do it at, at Missouri, they won the East twice. I know the East wasn't functioning to the level it is, but still, he showed that Missouri can have good moments in the SEC. And even Barry Odom, on his high watermarks, were higher than what Drinkwitz has achieved. In 2018, Barry Odom went eight and four, or excuse me, eight and five, four and four in the conference. And Drinkwitz so far, he, he kind of came out of the gates okay in that pandemic season. SEC only schedule. They went five and five, and I was I was bullish on the Tigers at that point. You remember they had that's when they had that good recruiting class, won won five games against SEC foes that year. I was I was believing it, but then they've just stalled six and seven the past two years. Some head scratching losses last year, an inability to get any better at quarterback. They've they're spinning their tires there. So I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I debated on these four quite a bit. And you can probably go a few different ways, but yeah, I settled on Napier, Arnett, Clark Lee, and, and Drinkwitz without feeling much conviction about any of them. Well, I think it's interesting that we are, we're pretty much in agreement on this list overall. I mean, our, our differences are very slight. Uh, so when I look at the, 
the bottom tier of your guys, uh, I would probably go with Sam Pittman because ahead of these guys, at the top of the bottom, so to speak, uh, how bad Arkansas was when he was hired. Let's not forget that. I, it had a Vanderbilt-like losing streak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't debate if we're putting Pittman in this conversation. He he yeah. separated himself from the rest. In fact. I gave more thought to moving Pittman higher on, on the list than where I had him at number 10. And in fact, a year ago, he was higher on my list. I thought Arkansas underachieved last year, and so that resulted in a bit of a tumble for Pittman. But he's still holding steady at number 10. I didn't, I didn't consider him for one of these final four spots. It was, it was tougher for me to arrange these four. You know, Billy Napier, Florida... He inherited a tough situation, but not a lot of reason for on-field optimism right now. Finished last season in a bad way. Couldn't get the quarterback situation solved this offseason. I still think there's a lot of holes facing that roster. But then you look at the future. Florida's on a recruiting blitz. They're number number three in the 24-7 composite recruiting rankings. So, you know, I don't know if I would say I'm a Billy Napier believer at this moment, but I'm not quite ready to write him off when I see the way he's been recruiting recently. And so that's why I settled on him. You know, it's sort of the, the best of this, this final group here. I really can't argue with that. I kind of want to put Drinkowitz ahead of Clark Lee, but he I, I did. Thought you would, you would have some real strong feelings about one of these, John. I thought maybe you'd think there, there's a real oversight I mean, you kind of tried to make the case for Jimbo Fisher, but you almost talked Jimbo Fisher into being ranked lower. I know. All these resources and and recruits he's signed, and (laughs) what has he done with them? Yeah, and I use the analogy of his falling off a building. So, (laughs) Right. (laughs) How good can he be? So, okay, well, let's just leave it with that then. All right. Well, the rankings are what they are. I'm sure the readers probably have more objection maybe to the rankings than, than what was discussed here. So you can find my email inbox and let me know. And maybe we'll have a, a best of the, the best of the complaints and airing of the grievances on a future episode. And if you feel bad about your SEC team getting booted out of the conference in favor uh, of the likes of UCF and Houston, sorry, we wish you well in the big 12 and uh, may the SEC see you in a future 12 team college football playoff. Thanks for listening to this edition of SEC Football Unfiltered. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.